Hello, and welcome to Money Girl, a podcast that helps you master your money so you can live rich and love the journey. My name is Laura Adams. I'm a personal finance expert and award-winning author of several books, including Money Girl Smart Moves to Grow Rich. For today's show, I have an interesting interview with Doug McCormick. He's a really smart guy who's a Harvard MBA, entrepreneur, and author. We talk about some of the ideas in his new book, called Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. Doug's book is all about how to use rock-solid corporate finance concepts to make better decisions and improve your personal finances. He spent decades managing money for institutional clients, such as insurance companies, pension funds, entrepreneurs, and high-net-worth families. We talk about his belief that Every family needs a chief financial officer or CFO and how even if you don't own a business, you are an entrepreneur because you sell your labor, which is your largest asset. Here are some of the important issues that I cover with Doug. We talk about how to manage your labor and career as an investment and protect it with the right kinds of insurance. We cover when to consider going back to school and what types of advanced degrees and skills can pay off the most. How education allows you to extend your working career, earn more, and have greater financial security. We talk about why typical financial literacy can oversimplify the role of debt and actually hold you back from achieving success. And how to stay focused on the big picture of your long-term financial goals and think more like a business owner than an investor even when the stock market takes you on a roller coaster ride. No matter your stage in life, I think our conversation will help you manage your family's finances better and make the most of your opportunities. Now, here's my interview with Doug. Doug, thanks so much for joining me on the Money Girl podcast. Uh, Glad to be here, Laura. Thank you. And congratulations on your new book, Family, Inc. Tell me why you wanted to write this book. Uh, well, you know, I, I saw a real need and an opportunity to have a positive impact on a lot of people who I think are uh, seeking ways to better navigate the financial game of life. Um, the way our economy is evolving, these skill sets are becoming more important, and our current education system uh, does not do a good job of teaching these life skills. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Tell me how you got started as a professional investor. Uh, You know, I'd probably have to uh, go way back to my early childhood. My father was an educator, but uh, enjoyed following the markets, and he got me interested at a very early age. And, uh, you know, nothing like success uh, to to breed interest. So uh, he he got me involved in a couple early stocks that did well, and and that seemed like a very interesting uh, hobby. That's great. So your whole book is based on the premise that families need to think about their finances more like a chief financial officer of a company. Why do you think that's so powerful for families? Well, I think um, I personally have struggled with um, trying to understand the impact of disparate decisions. So the way the market's currently arranged, people sell you investment products, they sell you insurance products. And it's hard to understand how those choices uh, impact one another. And I think this Family Inc. framework uh, is very powerful because, uh, first of all, it it allows you to recognize all the assets the family has, not only your investment assets, but but your labor assets, which for many people are the largest asset you may own. Uh, And it also helps 
connect these disparate decisions so that people can understand that their choices around education and career impact their choices around insurance, investment, and retirement. So for me, it's a very uh, elegant way to think about all these competing demands. Yeah, let's, we'll come back to the education piece. But first, I want to ask you to elaborate on why you think labor is our biggest asset. Well, you know, essentially, uh, you know, as a young person, you graduate from high school or college and you've got, you know, 50 plus years opportunity to essentially sell your labor in the marketplace for money. And, you know, that, that is an asset. Uh, and we think we should think about it the same way um, an owner of land would think about, um, you know, a natural resource like lumber or coal that would exist. So it's something that we have to sell. It's a perishable asset, but it is, I think, the most important asset that every family and every individual owns. Yeah, I think so many people underestimate or undervalue their earning potential. Tell me how you think education level influences our lifetime earnings. I mean, certainly those with advanced degrees have the opportunity to earn more. What would you say to somebody who's maybe thinking about going back to school or even someone who's struggling to pay off student loans right now? First and foremost, you have to be honest with yourself about your interest in pursuing a career that requires an education and your aptitude to be successful in achieving the education and and applying that in a career. The worst investment I think many people could make is to uh, invest in the education and and not take advantage of it. Um, But having said that, if you uh, do have the aptitude and the interest, I believe it's by far and away one of the absolute very best investments uh, that you can make today. Um, You know, the statistics are pretty clear. Higher levels of education result in higher average income, results in less unemployment, and one that many people underappreciate, it also allows most people to extend their earning capacity or their careers. You know, if you're, um, you know, in a manual labor environment, by the time you're 60, 65, that may be difficult to continue, Uh, but if you're in a white-collar profession that's utilizing your intellect, um, many people can be very successful and, and very effective, you know, well into their 70s, and so I think that additional earning power um, provides tremendous financial security. What about listeners who are thinking, wow, Doug, well, I'd love to go to graduate school, but I can't afford the cost of it, much less the loss of income that I might have to experience while I go back to school full-time? Yeah, I would say um, you need to differentiate the quality of the investment versus how to finance it. And so I think, as I said before, the investment is a very good one. And I think there are lots of ways to finance this, uh, such as school loans and other programs, to facilitate access to good education. So, you know, my advice to young people is if you have the aptitude and the interest, uh, you can't afford not to go to school. Yeah, I went back and got an MBA in my, gosh, I guess I was late, late 20s. And I really did think about it as an investment. Um, not only was it a lot of money, but it, it did take me away or was a distraction from my career at the time. I was lucky enough to have an employer who really supported me going back to school and even paid, I think, about a third of the cost. So I, I think a lot of folks can leverage their employer if they are, uh, if they have that as a benefit, they should definitely try to maximize it and even make a proposal to their employer to get even more reimbursement for education. If you can really make that case, you never know. They may actually come with more benefit than you anticipate. That was the case for me. 
Yeah, I find that people have, who have worked in an organization for a period of time who have done well and have demonstrated their long-term uh, potential for growth, you know, this conversation is usually well-received and, and uh, employers are generally pretty flexible about accommodating this additional experience in a self-interested way, right? It, it's an opportunity for them to bring you back um, with, the, with future growth opportunities. What are some of the best degrees to get that can maximize an investment in your education? Well, so one of the things that I'm a, a big advocate of is flexibility. And what I mean by that is, you know, the markets, uh, whether they be financial markets or the economy or businesses in general, are very dynamic today. Um, they're all competing in a, in a rapidly changing environment. And so skill sets that give you the flexibility to move geographies, to move industries, and to move uh, in different job types, I think, create real value. It's kind of the optionality of of those skill sets. Um, and to me, that leads to skill sets or degrees that are very focused on problem solving with a bias for underlying sciences and mathematics. Not necessarily because you will apply those specific mathematics in your job, but I think it's a disciplined way of thinking and solving problems. And ultimately, that's what employers are looking for, problem solving. Why do you think that hard work and talent really may not be enough to create wealth? Um, I think it's it's pretty clear uh, in in the marketplace. Um, you know, hard work and talent are certainly conditions that are required for success. Uh, but I think it also um, you have to be thoughtful to allocate your labor to attractive opportunities. And so, one of my big uh, beliefs that I that I communicate in the book is, you know, you should think about yourself as an investor when you allocate your labor to these different jobs. And, um, it, you know, not only do you need to work hard and be talented, but you need to deploy that labor against attractive opportunities in industries that are growing, that will create opportunity for advancement and also compensation for your, for your labor. Let's talk a little bit about debt. How do you think families should think about borrowing money to finance assets? Um, so, so, you know, I think there's a general oversimplification of the role of debt um, in the family uh, financial structure. And so, obviously, if you're going to, you know, borrow to consume, go eat out, uh, go buy clothes, buy a car, that's clearly not a good investment. But if you think about debt as a way to finance good investments, things like education, things like um, investments in the marketplace, entrepreneurship, or a home, I think those are all very legitimate. And obviously, debt has some a risk associated with it, so it needs to be prudent. But I think it's a valuable tool for the family CFO. Yeah, debt is a tool. We need to use it very judiciously. But in the long run, if it is helping you make money, if it's helping you purchase assets that appreciate over time, it's a good thing. If you're buying assets that don't appreciate, like you mentioned, clothes, vacations, and just basically running up credit card debt, it's a bad idea. Yeah, well, I think this is one of the problems with, um, you know, kind of financial literacy programs today. I think they often teach to the lowest common denominator. And, you know, the reality is many of these uh, decisions are complicated. They require an investment in the individual to really understand the choices. So I would agree if you don't have any debt, it's very hard to, um, you know, find yourself in financial distress. But the flip side of that is I think you've probably foregone um, valuable investment opportunities if you haven't uh, taken advantage of that.
You make the case for owning more stocks than conventional asset allocation. Why? Um, you know, I think it starts with the family ink business model. And, you know, we talk about the fact that um, an important asset, and in many cases the most important asset for the family, is your labor. And if you include that in your asset allocation strategies, I think um, your labor looks very much like an annuity or a bond. You know, you get paid out a little bit each year, and um, it, it, it's pretty consistent over a, a 30-, 40-, 50-year career. Um, and so I think in, in that context, uh, it would make sense to get more uh, exposure to equities. Um, I think the other big thing that I am a believer in is that the number one influencer of your risk profile is your expected holding period. And if you have capital that you expect to be um, able to keep invested for a long period of time, you know, the risk associated with holding equities decreases dramatically. Uh, you know, the last thing I would just uh, comment on this topic is uh, I think we all got to remember the goal. The goal of your investments is growing after tax, after inflation purchasing power. And I think that's best accomplished through equity. Right. So to kind of make that a little bit more simple for people to understand, the idea is that holding equities, holding stocks, they're risky. You know, you see it in the market. There's volatility every day. So if you're if you're watching your investments on a minute-by-minute, day-by-day basis, it's going to seem pretty scary. But the idea is that equities have gotten very nice returns over long periods of time. And the idea with retirement is that you don't need this money, you know, typically for decades. So if you are looking at this in a, in a long-term strategy, the day-to-day volatility really means nothing. The idea is that the money that you're investing will be worth more in 10, 20 years than it is today. So this is a really tough concept for a lot of people that don't have a stomach for volatility and, and they feel like, oh my gosh, I just lost money. Even if it's only on paper, they take it um, so emotionally. And so the idea is that these equities over time are going to allow you to build up the retirement nest egg that you need to live for decades after you retire. So how can people sort of keep their emotions in check when it comes to stocks? You know, I I think it's um, being focused on the big picture, um, appreciating that um, history is on your side. You know, if you look back over the last 200 years, you know, over any um, reasonably long period of time, call it 20 years, uh, equities have outperformed uh, fixed income. And to your point, it's really a product of, um, over time, the higher expected return uh, compensates you for that short-term volatility day-to-day. You know, the other thing that I think is really helpful as people watch uh, the stock market is to think more like a business owner rather than an investor. And so, you know, the, the volatility or the movement of the underlying earnings of these indexes that we all invest in, like the S&P 500, is actually uh, not very volatile. And you're, you're not buying paper. You're buying very good businesses. When you buy the S&P, you're buying into Coca-Cola, you're buying into Apple and Google, and these businesses have very good prospects. And for me personally, I think less about um, what someone will be willing to pay for that stock tomorrow and more about um, how is that stock going to generate cash flow for me and my family over the next 50 years. 
Right. And, you know, you think about buying a, a mutual fund or an ETF with these underlying equities. It's really the easiest way to become a business owner if you're not an entrepreneur in your work life. Um, it's like you're, you become an, an instant business owner. And I think that is a, a mind shift to think about it that way versus gaining or losing money. Um, and so you can make decisions um, that are, you know, hopefully less emotional that way and really trust that the indexes are going to work in your favor over time and show you an increase in that investment. Totally agree, Laura. And I think, um, you know, the way the, the way the industry kind of measures itself, you know, annual returns and annual volatility is a very nice, neat way to look at performance because we all think about things in a calendar year. Um, but, you know, back to your point, these, these are investments that you hope to consume, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And so annual performance really is kind of irrelevant, and we should be thinking more about um, performance over a decade or two decades. And, and in that, um, you know, lens, this is really a, a very um, different uh, risk profile. You say that the biggest impediment to success is not deciding what to do, but rather having the conviction to do nothing. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I think it's this concept we just talked about. So, um, you know, the book recommends a relatively equity, uh, heavy equity bias. And so now you've followed that advice and you're in the marketplace and absolutely for sure what we know is at some point you will encounter a significant market correction. And at that point, uh, having the you know, conviction and the strategy to stay the course continue to put in, you know, money into your retirement programs and continue to seek incremental equity exposure uh, is, is tough emotionally to do. And so I, I think it's, it's best accomplished through education and understanding, uh, you know, the, the logic behind it. But I think that's tough for many individuals. What would you say to someone who's really just getting started investing? Maybe they are even a little late to the game, and they've been perhaps living paycheck to paycheck. What are some ways to save money so you can free up more of your budget to invest? So, so I guess the, the first thing I would say is in some ways we talk a lot about investing, but the first investment you need to make is an investment in protecting yourself through insurances. Uh, and an investment in a rainy day fund because um, surprises invariably happen. And once you've accomplished those two things, then I think you're well positioned to start uh, becoming an investor in the market. Um, and, you know, I, I have a certain strategy that I recommend in the book, uh, but I think the more important thing is to get invested. And if you're uncomfortable with the, the equity exposure that I've proposed, um, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with, you know, a modestly more conservative portfolio if that's consistent with your, your uh, perception of risk uh, and you can stick to that program. Talk a little bit about the types of insurances you recommend for people to protect their labor asset. Yeah, I think the, the big underappreciated risk is uh, disability. Um, if you look at statistics about the likelihood uh, that, you know, a professional could become disabled over the course of a career. It's actually uh, much higher than most people think. Uh, and so, you know, financially, uh, this is more um, challenging for a family you know, than someone dying prematurely because not only have you lost uh, the income potential, but there are all kinds of costs associated with, um, you know, getting care around the, the incurred disability. So, you know, disability, absolutely, first and foremost, I think uh, life insurance uh, which is essentially, you know, insurance 
to compensate the family if someone dies unexpectedly and you've lost um, that that income stream. Uh, and then I think, you know, a variety of uh, insurances around liability management, whether it be uh, umbrella liability or auto insurance, all of those in my mind are the foundation for good defense. And once you've got your defense in place, then I think it's time to play offense with your investment strategy. Yeah, I recently did a podcast about 10 financial products you need to grow wealth. And disability insurance is one that often gets overlooked. We're actually more likely to become disabled before the age of 65 than to die. And and that's a pretty shocking statistic when you think about it. So everyone who's earning an income really needs to seriously consider disability insurance. I think folks forget that health insurance just covers your medical bills. It doesn't cover the cost of your uh, to live, food, housing, bills, if you do get uh, get injured and are unable to work. So that's a pretty important policy. Well, Lauren, you know, if you, again, if you go back to the Family Inc. business model, I started this conversation with, um, you know, your labor assets are generally your largest asset, and these insurances are designed uh, to compensate the family if they have a, you know, a tragic loss uh, of that labor asset. So, again, I think it gets back to the power of looking at um, the family as a business because you can directly see, you know, the asset and the loss of the asset and how they go together. Terrific. Doug, this is incredible information. Tell the listeners where they can learn more about you and your new book. Uh, so, um, you know, familyinc.com is a website uh, that uh, provides some more information about the book, the philosophy. It also has um, some high-level tools uh, that are essentially business tools applied to personal finance, an income statement, a balance sheet, how to think about um, the value of your lifetime labor, and also, obviously, the book is available on Amazon, other online retailers, and in your local bookstores. Thanks so much for joining me, Doug. Hey, Laura, I really appreciate the time. Enjoyed it. To learn more about Doug, check out the notes for this show in the Money Girls section at quickanddirtytips.com. This is episode number 449 called Use Business Principles to Maximize Your Wealth. And that's also where you'll find the full archive of podcasts that predate what's available in iTunes or any other audio app that you may be using, like Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Spotify's mobile app. If you have money questions, comments, or suggestions for future show topics, a great place to interact with me and many other really smart people who are in this community is my private Facebook group called Dominate Your Dollars. To request your invitation, visit Dominate Your Dollars on Facebook or send me a text message for immediate access. Just text DOLLARS to the number 33444. I hope to see you there. That's all for now. I'll talk to you next week, courtesy of Money Girl, your guide to a richer life. 